0: artist, writer, musician, and Dante scholar a little later in the hour. I had a hard time with books this week. I rarely bail on a book, but I guess as time goes on, I'm being a little more trusting of my intuition. I gave two books a chance and they just didn't work out. I thought I would get more from a book called 168 Hours by Laura Vanderkam. I liked the general idea that it might be helpful to look at the number of hours like as slots in a week in order to gain a different perspective on them but mostly I found it repetitive and shaming. A kind of look at all these people doing it right why can't you and I bailed. Then I attempted Life Finds a Way What Evolution Teaches Us About Creativity by Andreas Wagner. It was an audiobook because I had a long drive and it was read by Benedict Cumberbatch so that's always delightful but after several hours he was still way in the weeds about adaptive landscapes and evolutionary biology which is interesting up to a point i may actually give this one another chance because according to the blurb and other reviews he really does get eventually to things like picasso's guernica but i was like is this deep deep dive into evolutionary biology really necessary to understand the cultural creativity part so we'll see But I ended up going to the next one on my list, The Power of Meaning, Crafting a Life That Matters by Emily Eshfani Smith. I think I'm pronouncing that right. I really enjoyed the book. I recommend it. It addresses this deep need that as humans, we have for the satisfaction of meaning in our lives. And it's very engaging. She pulls in a lot of individual stories related to the chapter topics, but it's always framed as this person's journey, not like they did it. Why can't you? Her sections are the meaning crisis. So meaning is how we find satisfaction in our identity and purpose in this time that we all spend on earth. I love this distinction. Happiness is not meaning. And in study after study, happiness turns out to not be connected to national rates of suicide around the globe. Instead, she finds that people don't become despondent because they are quote unquote unhappy, which is how we always seem to frame it but instead due to a deep sense of meaninglessness. And this is so important because knowing this, we can build better ways to address that and actually literally save lives. The second part is belonging. It's one of the sort of pillars of what she kind of comes up with the parts that you need to create meaning. She refers to being part of a group you identify with, people who share your values, your visions, your passion, your worldview. This could be your family or a group of friends or volunteering, but well beyond this. Belonging is something we can create for ourselves and anyone else at any moment of the day. And she has wonderful examples of people just being appreciative of, say, like if doctors are or nurses are appreciative of the janitors. There was a story in the book about janitors who were considered part of the floor team, not just in terms of nurses saying thank you when they took the trash out, but when the nurses got together and went out for like staff appreciation days or picnics or whatever, they included the janitorial staff. It's such a small thing to do but it leads to such deep engagement with the work and better relationships the, among the people and all of that it leads to better worker retention, just better outcomes for everybody. Keeping a hospital clean has to be as important as other care tasks. Really interesting, nice way to, to handle it. Purpose is the next section, which it means having a goal in life and it can be large or small. Find ways to use your strengths and skills to help others. It does require some self-reflection and self-knowledge. Service and meaningful jobs are fairly easy to find that piece of purpose to. But as she talked about in the belonging chapter, we can all bring meaning to ourselves if we include everyone else and appreciate them. And especially if we extend this grace to people, we know work in jobs where the work and the pay do not grant appreciation like it's easy to feel appreciated if your paycheck shows it it's easier to feel appreciated if everyone says thank you doctor thank you doctor it's harder to feel appreciated if your paycheck does not show it and if the customers yell and throw things at you so pay attention be more consciously appreciative of others if for no other reason than to make up for the people who aren't People who see their work as helping others can find meaningfulness in their work, whatever that work is. The next section is storytelling, the narrative about the story that you tell about yourself. I got a really helpful bit of information from this, which was the concept of not just redemptive stories, but contamination stories which I thought was an interesting notion that they were at opposite ends of the spectrum. There's ways you can improve your sense of meaning and your mental health by paying attention to the kinds of stories that you tell and particularly how they end. People who are driven to contribute to society and to future generations appear to share a common pattern. They're more likely to tell redemptive stories about their lives or stories where there was a transition from bad to good, and this, in turn, gives them meaning. And I'd never heard this term before, but I was so steeped in this tradition my whole life, the contamination story. And that's the opposite. When people interpret their stories as going from good to bad, people who tell them tend to be less generative, in other words, less driven to contribute to society and to younger generations, they tend to be, quote, more anxious and depressed. Although I suspect that is the chicken's egg right there studies and exercises like writing out a what might have been story could help modify this create meaning in the here and now although one of the population studies assumed that divorced women were all unhappy and because they were divorced and I can assure you that is not the case although there is a certain amount of wistfulness in what might have been in terms of what Probably all of us hoped our marriage project would be as a positive experience. So at a kind of expectations slash reality divide, I could, I could buy that. But just being unhappy as a matter of course, that is not the case. And then the last pillar of meaning is transcendence, like a state of awe or a, uh, like a spiritual experience. Nature can do it. It can include but is not limited to re- religion. She doesn't refer to 12-step programs, but I kept hearing sort of an element from those where you contemplate that there is a higher power than ourselves that helps convey a sense of meaning, not alone, but with those other pillars of storytelling, belonging, and purpose. So she talks about mystical and transcendent experiences, including meditation but also drug-induced, which was sort of newish studies, I feel like, and that a brush with mystery, quote, whether under the stars or before a gorgeous work of art or during a ritual or in the hospital delivery room can transform us, and that they're usually quite short, which was, I think, a good reminder. And like in the narrative section, she said reminding ourselves of these moments can sustain us at other times. I didn't love the example of Jeff Ashby, who talked about this thing that astronauts often will go to space and look at the Earth and have a profound desire to care for it. But she told this long involved story about this astronaut that came back and then joined Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin, whose long term goal is supposed to be to help get people off the planet in the event that Earth becomes uninhabitable, which left a bad taste in my mouth because that's all about finding planets for the rich to run to, like Jeff Bezos, after they've ruined this one for the rest of us, which really undercut her point that seeing the planet from afar transforms us into wanting to care for it. I felt like... So here, here are some cons. I'll end with the pros. I, I felt like the narrative... could have used some more of the meta kind of narrative that Brene Brown talks about it's incredibly helpful to have the perspective that the stories that you tell yourself about things are a story that you tell yourself about things and that if you share that particularly when you're in friction with others if you say the story I'm telling myself is that you're angry at me because i'm not a good friend that that and then elicit from the other person like what story are you telling yourself about things right now that can really help open up perspective for yourself and for others that she doesn't go into that but that could be really helpful she talks a lot about service under the purpose area and i have to say there should be a big caveat about this because this this emphasis on service for meaning without any nuance can really be loaded for people who serve others but are never in service to themselves or have never been permitted to have any service of themselves or who are never able to accept service from other people. She has a little story about that giving to others piece where this guy had a he bought a paper from the same guy every day and one day he didn't have the money and the newspaper guy was like hey i know you it's good next next time you come bring me the extra dollar and the guy was like no no i always pay my debts and he went into a store and he got the money and he you know got the change and he went back out and he paid for it and he only realized with a gap a few minutes later that the newspaper guy accepted the money kind of crestfallen. He had offered this sort of gift of friendship, this gift of connection. And he didn't know what to do with it, that the other guy refused that gift. Meanwhile, the other guy is feeling like, you know, I'm sure he was told as as a young person, you always pay every debt or whatever. he was able to make up for it later repair that moment and they have become good friends and in fact what he did was the next time he brought that guy coffee as an appreciation it kind of helped move move that relationship along but those moments where someone is offering you grace if you can't accept that you can't see it then you'll burn out and she never covers anything about codependency or burnout She does walk that well-worn demonization of ego and I'll talk about that in a bit but there are legions of us who were told that attention to our own needs was egoic and selfish and we identify with service so hard like we want that meaning so much that we can work until there is nothing left of ourselves and that while We feel we've achieved meaning. It's been at the expense of ourselves and our mental health and our physical health. And I do think it deserves a caveat. And I do feel like she toes that same ego is always bad in the transcendence chapter. And I have a real, I, I part ways with that. I think ego is healthy. I think that it is a part of self and needs to be accepted fully as one of the parts of ourselves so that it doesn't drive us into bad relationships or bad situations on the one hand and it doesn't drive us into self-sacrificing on the other hand she doesn't cover and she should because even when she wrote this book a couple of years ago, it was pretty well established. Attachment trauma, even though a substantial part of the book covers PTSD and CPTSD, she does talk about trauma as not only catastrophic damage, which is what we all tend to talk about it as, but also the concept of post traumatic growth and how some people get stuck, but not addressing the broken attachment piece ends up making this part more shaming as if the inability to grow out of trauma is something you could solve through journal writing, or something like that, or by serving others. But people who have had, uh, she did talk about how people who have had a traumatic experience in childhood, and were not allowed to speak of it, had catastrophic trauma. And those that were allowed to speak of it often uh, tended to have, put it that way, more post-traumatic growth. But she doesn't examine the fact that the ability to talk about it indicates that somewhere, somehow, someone has given you the attachment, the support to be willing to hear you talk about it, to give you a safe place to talk about it. And I just want to say that those attachment traumas, those attachment injuries can be healed and by healing those things like PTSD and CPTSD can begin to turn into post-traumatic growth instead of flashbacks and triggers and post-traumatic stress or post-traumatic cascades. I also want to say that in the part about purpose if you have trouble with the idea that using your strengths and your skills to help others which she suggests you do to find purpose like a lot of people feel like when they read something like that that they don't have any or that the ones they have are unwanted or I'm also putting this out if you are one of those people that's giving so much that you're getting meaning but losing yourself or if you're pulled so hard to have mystical experiences that instead of using the drugs that she talks about to gain a kind of insight or explore a kind of, you know, variation on the human psyche, instead of you're using them to self-medicate, those are all an inner voice requesting therapy and I had some real big thoughts about contamination versus redemptive for one thing I know my family co- told contaminated stories all the time that was the style of family storytelling to the point where I often refer to these stories as the last potato stories because we I felt like we were always stuck in the aftermath of the 1845 Irish potato famine Or in the 1930s, depression, well, you know, the last can of tomato soup. But this kind of contamination narrative was also overlaid with a religious demand that we suffered because we were going to go to heaven as a result, like that was our payment. And a social demand that we always be happy with our lot, which was like this reflexive Pollyanna dance. And I know that when I was younger, I often felt like it was more authentically right to make sure that every story had both the good and the bad outcomes at the end almost like it was more fair or more authentic so now I'm not really sure about the pros and cons of these kinds of narratives I'll have to really take some time and think about what they mean and how they play out but I do feel like if you feel the compulsion to make the story redemptive or if you are always ending up with a contamination ending and quite honestly that is an awfully loaded word like I appreciate having a term for it maybe I'll go looking for one that's not quite as dire Again, that's that inner voice needing to be heard. And if you can't stop to listen, therapy is exactly for this kind of thing. And in fact, it's a, if you become self-aware about it, it's an excellent thing to tell a therapist that you're doing in order to, you might actually be in a case where it's comforting to do that or habitual to do that. And by doing it, you're also sort of robbing yourself of the experience of meaning, but you may need third person help. She could not have known COVID has changed and COVID plus whatever is coming next will continue to change everything about work, our lives, and meaning. And we are only at the very, very tip of this inflection point that's going to play out in the coming decades. So am I telling a contaminated story then about this book? Honestly, most of the examples are delightful. I really did enjoy the book. I thought it was well-written, well-crafted. The stories all deal with someone who went through a new thought process and then went on to do something that helped themselves and others. There were women who started a grieving dinner group. There was the guy that started StoryCorps. Understanding that trauma if you had adequate attachment, or if you can heal disrupted attachment, is also the mechanism of growth. That's big. And centralizing meaning to ask the questions of ourselves, are my days meaningful? Are my kids engaged in meaningful activities? That's never gonna be a bad question to ask. Next up, a conversation with polymath Dr. Adoyo on Career, Creativity, and Community. With me today is Adoyo, a storyteller born and raised in Kenya, and a Dante Specialist. Welcome, Adoya. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Janet. Thanks for having me. So we talk about on the show the endless sort of balance and and fluidity of work, community, and creativity, and how people manage to pursue those in their lives. So you can pick any of those three and uh, start, and we'll see where we go. Sure. Huh. So the three pillars
1: are work. Just if you run down run that down for me yeah. again.
0: Work. Work in the sense that it's always good to be able to pay rent and food. Mm-hmm. Um, creativity in the sense that if you only work, then you don't sort of feed your soul. And mm-hmm. community, that other piece that we need in order to be sort of healthy individuals in the world. Healthy oh, fantastic. people okay. in the Thank world. You so-
1: Thank you so much for reiterating that work creativity and community. I would start with community first and foremost because mm. I think that everything that is that is uh, rooted in our engagement with other people in essentially in sort of a in the ethical sense ethics being the idea of interpersonal relationships how we treat one another mm. and that being the the through thread of how a community is held together when things are rooted within that community and when the community is a healthy one when all the participants are able to some extent or another contribute or draw from it something that that nurtures them then I think that kind of foundation is really important mm-hmm. I I believe that uh, John Dunn has this famous poem that says no man is an island unto himself and everyone is dependent upon another. And it goes, to me, it it uh, resonates with the notion of it takes a village to raise a child uh, yeah. and not just a child, but I think it takes a village for anyone to live a healthy life. Now this village doesn't have to be multitudinous. They have, it doesn't have to be crowded. It can be just two people. It can be, um, a trio it can be maybe a small group of individuals who are engaged with one another in some way that has nothing to do with the earning of a living or the effort to to find meaning or or, or worthiness within that community in other words a group of people where one feels completely at home and at ease if if that kind of community is possible for any individual. I think the other two work and creativity fit in and grow out of that very organically.
0: Mm. Oh, I love that. It's funny because I think you're, I think you're the first person I've ever talked to who starts with the others growing out of that versus sort of taking care of the others and then seeking community. That's mm-hmm. very interesting.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because here's the thing I, I mentioned the, um the, I mentioned community in terms of ethical principles. And what I have in mind, if you don't mind my getting a little shop talky about this. No, please, this is interesting. (laughs) I have in mind a really beautiful model that Aristotle lays out in the Nicomachean Ethics where he describes politics as the architectonic science, right? the architectonic uh, discipline that has to do with the life of the polis, right? How people live with one another Mm -hmm. and how... The, the, the principles that underlie how a polis is held together are their ethical principles. Now, there's a spectrum that he lays out of what these ethical relationships can be. Again, I will reiterate ethics being interpersonal relationships, one-on-one or group-to-group. Mm. Um, and the spectrum that he lays out has, at one extreme, very uh, transactional relationships business relationships, whereby it's a clear, it's clearly one that's defined in terms of quid pro quo, I give you this, you give me that. Mm. When it's a trade relationship or mercantile relationship, it's about commodities and currency. At the other end of the spectrum, if you think about it like an odometer, right, just mm. way over to mm-hmm. the other end, and the other end is altruistic relationships, that's not about quid pro quo. That is governed principally by the non-expectant, non-reciprocal safeguarding of the well-being of the other. And the model that he gives there, just as for the quid pro quo he had given mercantile relationships, like commercial relationships of business associations, at the end of in the altruistic spectrum, at the end of the spectrum where there's altruism. The model that he provides is that of the parent to the child, Mm. um, specifically, say the parent to an infant who is entirely dependent on their parent, not only for survival, but for education, for safety, and uh, to thrive, right? Mm. And then there's everything in between, right? So, they're all different kinds of relationships fall somewhere in the spectrum. Either they're complete transactional or they they approach altruism. It's interesting. Aristotle says that true altruism is not really possible but that's the closest you can get, right? Mm-hmm. And so every other relationship falls somewhere in between and people can choose how to, to mediate or how to negotiate the kind of relationship they want to establish and, and, and cultivate between one another. So in this model then what they all have in common from the transactional to the altruistic is that every one of them works successfully and is held together by trust
0: ah yes yes
1: yep and that ultimately is the glue that holds community together the glue that sustains interpersonal relationships of any kind together and i'll give another very basic example just to illustrate In the case of the transactional relationship, you go into a store and you buy a carton of milk. There is a a tacit understanding of trust and that the person who's who's selling you the carton of milk is A, first of all, selling you milk as it is labeled Mm. and it is fresh. It's milk that you can actually consume. You in turn give them the $3 or however much it costs. And what they're trusting is that the $3 you're giving them is actually legitimate currency. Right? right, right. The moment either one of you breaks that trust, if the person sells you a carton of milk that they know not to be actually consumable, whether it's expired or it's actually not what it says on the label, or the buyer passes fake bills, then this leads to a breakdown in the the sort of the basic integrity of that ethical relationship.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to Nine to Thrive, a show about career, community, and creativity.
1: On the other hand, on the altruistic end with parents, the trust dynamics works in us, even though an infant cannot uh, articulate their needs, the parent understands what that that infant's needs are. Mm. And the the contract, if you will, that the parent has is not only with that infant, but in the presence or with the implication of society at large as well. Mm. So the parent Mm. is looking after the child and fulfilling their trust obligation toward the child. So the child is... Uh, safe the child survives so the child thrives so the child's educated and as the child grows up this relationship is one that will never ever reach parity and it's not transactional which this is a really fascinating thing about the way the Nicomachean ne- ethics sets it out it's never transactional in that there's no point at which he says oh when the child grows up now they're going to look after their parents right but he does say what the child can do is reflect the care and nurture that they receive from their parents the education all of that in how they comport themselves in society right and that way society may see ah this parent has done a good job and this all of this I'm saying is very deductive and very generalized but that's the that's the model that I have in mind when I talk about community
0: that's that's really lovely and when you were saying not just the the infancy, but the rest of the raising of a child—it reminded me of a lovely phrase that when you're in it, it's hard to keep reminding yourself of it, and that mm-hmm. is that we don't raise children; we raise adults.
1: Yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> and every present moment in a child's life is there everything, like that's there right. forever, right? right? So the child has no future, future ideation, or future projection. But the parent does. Mm-hmm. And so part of the parent's responsibility is to hold that future ideation in trust for the child until such time as a child can assume responsibility for it themselves, right? Mm-hmm. Until such time as a child is robust enough and you know, in terms of like cognitive and 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 practical skills to assume that responsibility for themselves. But you're absolutely right that, that the raising of children is essentially the the formation of the members of society, right, who mm. will then in their turn be the ones who are responsible for raising children in their turn and right. educating them. And this is a really, really important part, uh, raising in terms of educating nurturing and seeing that the child thrives in every way. Mm. And this, this leads me to the other two elements that you mentioned, which is creativity and work. Mm. And in this particular case, I'm going to then I think I'll just keep uh, stepping back and now touch on creativity before I go into work. So mm-hmm. I have this friend and we were talking the other day about how uh, Jean-Baptiste, the pianist oh, yeah. who works on the, the Stephen Colbert show. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're talking about how uh, his mother used to take him to music venues to play the piano when he was very young. Mm. And our conversation then flowed into how Louis Armstrong, when he was very young, he took to the trumpet, and and his parents saw to it that not only did he get a, a, a suitable instrument, but that he got to play mm. wherever he could, wherever they would, he had the, you know permission to to access. And as we were talking, more and more examples kept surfacing of children with extraordinary talent who then grew up to be adults of extraordinary talent. And the through thread within our conversation was that their parents had made the point upon noticing their child's proclivity, talent, taste Mm. for a particular activity, they had facilitated the child's ability to pursue that that skill, mm, right? Yeah. We also talked a little bit about those parents who then get a little bit tyrannical, right? And, <laughs> right. And and try to turn their children into you know cash cows. But we were mostly focused. Our attention was focused on those who those musicians and particularly musicians, but it wasn't it wasn't just limited to them. Those who, when we witnessed them sort of exercising their their art or their craft in public. There's a there was a joy mm-hmm. in their demeanor. There was a generosity in the way they played, and there was an ease with how they came into and out of every performance. Mm-hmm. And the 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 common thread always was how how much the parents and then particularly the mothers, because it, it turns out that the common factor here was the mothers, right? Right. How the mothers had made a point of being the the ancillary agent for the child, there, ensuring
0: that the child got what they needed. There's a trust piece you were saying. They trust yes. that this interest is a valid and legitimate one worth mm-hmm. their time to support.
1: Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. And what's really interesting is the attitude of the parent also here was, was not uh, driven by by a sort of transactional interest, right? Or a, right. A, an interest for remuneration that, ooh, if I, if I back this kid now, then they're gonna be able to pay me back in the future. But rather it was driven more by this child is passionate about this, loves to do this. And so this is what I have the agency to facilitate their capacity to do. And so I talk about this because I, I, I found that even for people who are not professional artists or musicians or writers or what have you, uh, or athletes, even for people who don't get to the level where they, in a crowd, stand out as exceptional, when you just look at people who simply enjoy and draw a lot of, a sense of connection with the world through some art or craft that they're engaged in, whether it be writing or some other skill like athletics or sports, something that they do out of joy, you find that very often these are people who found that particular proclivity encouraged by their parents, by their community. They they we have we do have sad cases of people who had, you know, exceptional talent, but because they were sort of tyrannically managed and obliged to turn it into something, right. they they turned away from it.
0: Right. But for
1: the most part, those who do have that insouciant and uncomplicated love mm. have in common that the community out of which they grew enjoyed it with them, supported them by being there to... To witness and encourage them in their engagement with this craft. So, so, and I think this is something that really contributes greatly to the health and well-being, the psychological, emotional, um, mental well-being of an individual mm. when they're coming out of a situation where they can turn to something that has always been a nurtured part of their life be it right. by their parents or their siblings or the community or their teachers sometimes it's a, a mentor at school sometimes it's someone at a church or temple and and always having that that other person who not only noticed but championed this this activity without adding any baggage to it it's right. something that growing up becomes a real source of spiritual, psychological nourishment.
0: It's interesting. You mentioned the athletics in the same breath as the arts. And it, Mm -hmm. it made me think about how often I've been aware of just through media adults Mm -hmm. who do companies have softball teams. Mm -hmm. It's sort of a thing that when I don't play softball, but I know that happens. I've seen it on TV shows. I'm aware that it's a thing, Mm -hmm. but people that do arts if they're not going to make it a money producing piece of their life Mm. then you know they come out at the other end of of all this study of say dance or all this study of music Mm. and i feel like they just sort of find themselves in a formless void of Mm. trying to (laughs) trying to see if they could find some people to get together for a quartet Mm. or something it's it just seems too bad that we can't call athletics the same as we call arts in those ways
1: i hear what you're saying i will add though from my experience when it comes to artistic endeavors and expressive artistic endeavors like dance and music instrument playing or 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 performance of some kind certainly you know engagement with others like playing in groups in small groups or in larger bands is one way to to exercise that within a community right Mm -hmm. now it may seem formless that you know this person doesn't have a band to play with or doesn't have a quartet to play with or they can't seem to find that community orchestra what have you what's really curious is that If, you know, that love that they have for the music, Mm. for the dance, for whatever the craft may be, that doesn't go away. Right. They may not be able to realize it in a larger community sense, the way, say, athletes in a group sport might be able to, in a team sport, sorry, I say group sport, I should say team. (laughs) (laughs) Athletes in a team sport may be able to do. But that doesn't mean just because it's not happening in a public venue that they don't they don't do it I will use myself as an example right Hmm. I when I was nine years old I discovered the piano I don't remember how it happened but it was love (laughs) it was instant complete devotion this was this was the purpose of life for me and any place where I went once you know you know that that phenomenon where when you don't know a word and then you learn it for the first time suddenly you're hearing it everywhere ah yes Mm -hmm. (laughs) it was a new word this is what pianos were like for me i was noticing pianos everywhere (laughs) (laughs) once i i i really got a taste for playing them and so i would find and i I had this piano radar like we would be at some (laughs) place and i would find the piano and i'd be there playing and after a while, it became a thing where people knew if they couldn't find me, right, with everybody else, they had to ask, just ask whoever was the host or whoever's place that belongs, do you have a piano anywhere nearby? And they knew to find me there. <laughs> but what happened then is when I went back to school and I, was, uh, I went to boarding school, when I went back to school, I, then I began noticing the pianos there too. So I was playing them all the time. Interestingly, I didn't get any formal training. What I did get was the choir director who hearing, you know, hearing rumors of how much I love to play the piano made me the accompanist mm. for choir practice. Now this, this is completely mm. random. <laughs> and so I, I, I just, just developed the habit of learning things by ear and playing for, uh. as an accompanist for the choir. And and then I, did, I discovered that my best friend at the time, she was getting piano lessons at home. So she would teach me some of the things that Aww. she learned, right, formally. Yeah. And that became sort of our thing. So for years and years, this was the case. Then I go into college. And it 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 occurred to me because of the kinds of the way your life has to be much, much more structured. Now, mind you, I'm talking to someone who went through boarding school, all of my primary and secondary education. Mm. So my life was pretty structured, but by the time you get to college, all of those external structures fall away and it's entirely up to you. You have to provide the structure yourself. And it was there where I discovered that I really missed being able to play the piano. And I also discovered that they offered piano courses so I signed up for one, and that's when I discovered just how ill prepared I was uh. to play piano formally, because I didn't I I didn't necessarily sight read. I could kind of fake my way through a chart. Mm. I could make up a, a few things, but I'd never I'd never gone through the process of actually learning how to play a piece from the score. Mm-hmm. And so this professor who took me on, I explained to him my situation. I played for him. He liked my. He liked my sound. He liked the way my 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 arms and my the way my arms moved and the way my body was placed. He corrected a few things and then he told me we we're gonna have to start from scratch. Hmm. So here I'm in college, starting <laughs> piano from scratch, which is really <laughs> odd because I played some really complex pieces. But as a sight reader, I had to I had to start with fairly rudimentary things, right? Hmm. Uh, which was fine. But, but that, was, that was humbling and a little bit frustrating at first, but I stayed with it. And then it turns out when I transferred universities, I, I transferred from the East Coast to the West, West Coast my second year. I, I can't tell you just how deeply I missed playing the piano. Mm. It was so profound. Now, <laughs> my, favorite, my favorite composer, by the time I was transferring, was Beethoven
0: Mm,
1: and and I was I was playing Beethoven formally which I hadn't done before before it had always been by ear Mm. but now I was playing from scores and so what I did I started out my education as a geologist right I was studying geology and soil science Mm. when I transferred and discovered how much I missed the piano being a creature of extremes Mm -hmm. who understood that the structure of my life was entirely up to me I switched majors from geology and soil science mm-hmm. to music. Oh, wow. <laughs> yes. Wow. That is, now, that is one coast to another coast. <laughs> now, here's what's really interesting about this. In the context of what I was saying earlier, in terms of, you know, sort of rising out of the community that sort of encourages you and developing that skill, what's really interesting is all my life I've been told by the you know, caretakers around me oh you love the piano you love this music you love doing this it's fine just do that as a hobby but make sure that you do something concrete worthwhile, right. something you can make a living out of and so I do remember the first time I heard that my I, I felt quite crestfallen
0: mm.
1: because like I said when I discovered the piano I thought I discovered the meaning of life <laughs> right and and when when my when my best friend was teaching me what she knew from her lessons it felt like a little bit of a, I was getting some manna from the gods on the sly, right? (laughs) And so here I was again in university on my own. I could lay out my own path. And in order to then justify to my parents this dramatic change that I was making, I wrote them a really detailed and well thought out letter explaining why I was changing majors. Mm. And my reasoning was, you know, I and I love. By mind you, I loved studying geology and soil science. I really did. I was working in the lab. I absolutely adored it. I loved reading and and studying mathematics, which was a very important part of the discipline. And I loved organic chemistry and science. Like all of these figured into my discipline as a geology and soil science mm. major. But the the deep in your core sort of void that I felt because I never had time to play Beethoven Hmm. and the drastic decision I made to make it my entire life (laughs) (laughs) by turning it into a major was so profound right and and but I thought it was really important that I that it not be a rebellion on my part that it not be me sort of you know you know burning bridges and telling people that I didn't care what they thought so uh, I yeah. I wrote a very careful letter explaining that since this was the beginning of my life and I knew that undergraduate disciplines are much more flexible in that I had already done enough courses as a science major that I wouldn't have to spend extra time in college plus All of the science classes I had done still allowed me the possibility of being a pre-med student. Like you always have to add a little bit of like something, something. (laughs) 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 Even as a music major, I could still later on in graduate or professional school, go into all these other disciplines. Now, mind you, this is information that I'd also gotten from advisors at college. Right. That as a music major, I could go to law school. I could go to med school. I could do all these other things. So this was me just making sure that everyone was okay with this. I was aware that it was a very important decision. I didn't I didn't have a sense of just how drastic it was. It mm-hmm. just felt necessary, you know? <laughs> and thankfully, and I think it was thanks to this letter and how carefully I composed it, mm-hmm. I didn't get a lot of grief for making this decision. I got more like, "Well, if that's what you want to do, it's your funeral." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: Well, you know, this ties back to what you were saying before about support. Like when you talk about that arc from geologist to music, the mm-hmm. one the the sort of parallel arc I think about is the guy that created AutoTune and mm-hmm. is a zillionaire for mm-hmm. creating AutoTune, which he created because he was a geologist and was doing sonar samples Uh of the ground and then he Uh also loved music and he (laughs) did some things and he thought that's kind of funny how that changes Uh the tone and Mm. i often think to myself you know Mm -hmm. parents and i had these parents who are determined that you should go in the way that you are directed and programmed Mm -hmm. to go Mm -hmm. almost guarantee almost Mm -hmm. not quite but Mm -hmm. it but in a I would I I'm, I'm willing to say in most cases guarantee mm. a struggling mm-hmm. never quite working up to potential
1: yes.
0: kid because yes. if they were to back off and let you go towards the thing you wanted to do you will find all sorts of interesting sort of uh little paths I I remember someone telling me who was a career counselor she said She was so proud of herself, and I was so annoyed with her. She said, all these kids want to be marine biologists. Well, the world's Mm -hmm. got enough marine biologists. And I was like, (laughs) you are not the the one. Yeah, you're not the one that gets to decide that. Because go ahead and and tell these 200 kids who want to be marine biologists, and Mm -hmm. five of them will be, and Mm -hmm. the other 195 will do what you did two years later, Mm. they'll say, actually, I can't live without music. They will, Mm -hmm. they'll go in these ways. But when you, when you instead just divert them all to accountancy, something Mm -hmm. dies. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You've undermined that community. Yeah. Yeah. You've made it untrust. You've made it untrustworthy.
1: Yeah. You're absolutely right in that. There's an atrophy that, 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 that happens when, when the soul can't fully express itself. Mm. Or at least can't can't fully explore what it's called to do right mm-hmm. when it can't respond to the vocation yeah. that it's that it's receiving and and i don't i know i completely understand the the concern you know we were talking earlier about the the you know parents raising adults mm-hmm. right as children, and so I completely understand the the very real and deep concern that parents might have for the material well-being of their children, they want to ensure that their children can look after themselves right. and have the, the means and access to the resources necessary to, to be hale and hearty and, and not be dependent, not only on their parents, but not be, be dependent on the kindness of strangers, right? Mm-hmm. So this I completely understand what's what's sad about that is is that when the the paradigms for success are very limited and people are not allowed the possibility to, to see the the, uh, the uh, to 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 develop and cultivate a more holistic idea of what it means to 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 be healthy right mm-hmm. and to be secure and they think that the only way to do that is to make sure you have enough money. And the only way to get enough money is to have, you know, a viable uh, job, the kind of job that is, is copiously available, you know, uh, in, in, you know, in the hiring world. If they have a very narrow paradigm, then, of course, naturally, they can't help but believe that that is the way their child has to go. Right. It's very possible that they never had the opportunity to consider a wider conception of what it means to be healthy and happy yeah and so and so you're right in that this child who not only are they being denied their vocation but they're also being denied the possibility of exploring what it means Mm. they're not given a chance to explore the possibility of living through their work they're made to work to live. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. That, that they, their life is made about working.
0: It's pulling a kind of meaning away from the mm-hmm. task itself or the. Right.
1: Yeah. Right, exactly. You know, there's a, there's a passage here that you reminded me of um, out of the Divine Comedy. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll tell you that my, my niece, who is now 11 years old, was born on the same day that I was born September 22nd and it also happens to be the day that Dante died 700 years ago this year actually oh wow in 1321 September 22nd Dante died I know it's September 22nd, although according to the Julian calendar, which is the one that was being used at the time, Mm. it said September 14th, but any computer conversion will tell you it's the 22nd, but more interesting and more compelling than the mere date change is the fact that that was the fall equinox, Mm. right? So Dante died on the fall equinox on September 14th, 1321, according to the Julian calendar which by the Gregorian calendar would have been September 22nd and this September 22nd fall I could when I was born and when my niece Mina was born mm. I used to tell her stories about um oh and she was born very early oh I see she was uh she she came way too early nobody was expecting her <laughs> and so and so I used to tell her that the reason why she arrived so early is because she met this soul up in the heavens Dante and he would tell her he like when he met her he was like oh I know your auntie (laughs) (laughs) she's amazing she and I are really great friends (laughs) and Dante would just talk to her would tell her all about her auntie Adoyo And Mina got just so fascinated. So this is me telling my my, my nieces, right? She just got so fascinated and impatient. And she was like, I really have to go meet her. (laughs) And Tata was like, wait, but it's not your time. She's like, no, 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 no. I really got to go meet her. And so she showed up early. (laughs) And she decided to show up on my birthday because she figured that way I'd have to meet her, right? (laughs) Anyway, so the point is from the day she was born to this day, like I've always told her these sort of tales about her and dante and me and how we have this this thing going and one day she came to me she was about seven years old and she was auntie you always say that dante talks about everything and i was like yeah he does and she's like um does he talk about waterfalls and i was like yes he talks (laughs) about waterfalls and she's like, uh, does he talk about bread? And I was like, yes, he talks about bread. <laughs> <laughs> and then she gets this look in her eye, right? Just like challenge. She goes, hmm, I've got a really good one. And she's like, Auntie, does Dante talk about fireflies? Mm. And I was like, ooh wait does he talk about fireflies <laughs> and like so I'm going through like the, the folds of my memory right so going like wait does he talk I was like yeah, I seem to remember that he talks about fireflies like why is it that he talks about fireflies and then it hit me oh my gosh yes he does <laughs> use fireflies in one of the similes when he's talking about how the souls in the distance like he's looking at this dark dark uh, chasm in hell and the souls are flames and he says that the way they're flickering reminds him of fireflies. Oh, wow. Yes. So I pulled up that passage. I was like, Mina, look, <laughs> he talks about fireflies. It's just like, oh my God, he really does talk about everything.
0: <laughs> I'd like to thank Adoyo for talking with me today. Tune in next week for part two of our conversation. Links to Adoyo's books, as well as past episodes, can be found at our website, working 9 thrivecom and that's with the number nine.